As an adult, having an everyday job feels easier when you have someone that you can depend on. It's a good thing that Glow Prepaid offers GoPlus promos where you can choose the data that you want. And with GoPlus 99 Go Work, accomplishing all your work tasks becomes easier. With a total of 18 gig of data, you can now have 8 gig of all sites to do what you need and 8 gig of data for apps that you love through Globe Prepaid's Go Plus 99 with Go Work promo. On top of that, you also get unlimited texts to all networks valid for 7 days. To register, grab your mobile phones now and head on to their Globe One app, Gcash or dial asterisk 143 hashtag on your phone to access apps like Zoom, Facebook Meeting Room, Yahoo Mail, Microsoft Teams, WhatsApp, Viber, and Telegram. Start your working hours with enthusiasm and end with efficiency with Glow Prepaid's Go Plus 99 Go Work. Hello. Hello. <clears throat> Podcast Network Asia. Network Asia. I feel like the biggest opportunity here in the Philippines is actually in reinventing some of these everyday experiences. So if you think about it, some of the you know most disruptive business models have been business models like Uber, have been business models that have taken these very micro everyday experiences and turned them into something efficient and scalable. And so I think that in the Philippines, there's definitely something. For example, like what Kumu did, right? Take this idea, you know, that Filipinos love engagement, love this idea of live streaming, and make it uniquely their own. Make this whole digital ecosystem. There are a lot of those opportunities out there. And so if there were an entrepreneur kind of looking for that one big idea, look at the everyday life. You know, look at the pain points that exist in everyone's daily usage of the internet, everyone's daily interactions with each other. And there has to be something scalable there. And so that's what I'm really looking forward to, kind of seeing these uniquely Filipino solutions come up and then hopefully also cascade to the rest of Southeast Asia. Good evening, good afternoon, good morning to everybody listening to the RJ Ledesma podcast. Welcome to my show. Here on the RJ Ledesma podcast, I interview the country's pioneering business personalities and entrepreneurs to learn more about how they think about business, what are their success secrets, and can we hack those same success secrets, how they've innovated their businesses during this pandemic, and more importantly, What opportunities do they see emerging in the new normal? Now, is there a business personality or entrepreneur that you would like me to interview here on the podcast? Please do let me know. I would love to have them here on the show. Just drop me a message. We are live right now on Kumu, CBRC TV, Global Pinas, and now Bounce Back Network. And tonight, I think this episode is very appropriate as we call out the unicorns. The unicorns are here for tonight. Because tonight on the RJ Ledesma podcast, we sit down with Yang Yang Zhang and Christian Reyes of Zen Philippines, which just recently achieved unicorn status in the Philippines and in Indonesia. Now, first of all, we will be interviewing the CEO and Managing Director of Zendit Philippines, Yang Yang Zhang. Throughout her career, Yang Yang has lent a, life, has lent a lifelong passion for disruptive technology and social impact to build truly innovative projects. Meanwhile, Christian Reyes recently joined as the Chief Operating Officer of Senate Philippines. Prior to finding his calling rather in fintech, 
He spent the first 14 years of his career in Wall Street holding various leadership roles at Morgan Stanley, but the call to come back home and serve is, was very strong with him. Now, how did they achieve this incredible milestone for the company? Please welcome here right now to the show both Yang Yang Zhang and Christian Reyes of Send It Philippines. Guys, welcome to the show. Welcome, welcome. Hi, good evening. Good evening, everyone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, good evening. Oh, you're, you're mute, yeah? There you go. Uh, good evening slash good morning from here. <laughs> and, and, and again, you guys are calling in from where? Where are you calling in from, Yang? Yeah? Connecticut. So I'm calling in from Hartford. Wow. And Christian, you're calling in from? Uh... I'm calling in from New York City, but it won't be long. So I'm already scheduled to fly in a week. Less than a week. Oh, so oh, maybe next time when we do this, RJ, we can do this in person. <laughs> we can do this in person. Anyway, fully boxed them on tire lines, so no problem. And, and so nice. It's nice. So thanks again for calling in, waking up early. And guys, just to let you know, Yang Yang just had her baby there in the States. So she's actually, she was up all night and now she's over here. So Yang, thanks so much for this call above and beyond duty and staying awake for us here today. So the big news, the big news here today, really great. And we, we talked about this last week was that, that uh, of course, Zendit has achieved unicorn status. now. For the people watching this for the first time, I mean, for maybe for the people who know startup, the startup community, they know exactly what a unicorn is. But for those of us, for those who aren't familiar with that, let's bring things down to the layman's terms of what does a unicorn mean. How exactly, how big is that when your company becomes a unicorn? Yang, maybe you can tell us a bit more about that. Sure. So basically, unicorn is what all startups kind of strive to achieve. First unicorn in the world was Google, uh, now Alphabet. It basically means that in your last round of funding, your VCs or your investors consider your valuation higher than a billion dollars. So I think that for us, you know, wow. kind of starting from just, you know, 2016, 2015, it's a pretty big achievement. We're very excited. Wow, fantastic. And tell us a bit more. So you just became a unicorn just a few weeks ago, if I'm not mistaken. And the more interesting thing about what happened to you guys is that uh, if, if people understand sort of like startup funding, you had Series B, which is the next to the last round, to Series C, which is the biggest round. They were just very close to one another. Is that right, Jan? Yeah. So I think that, you know, <laughs> as a founder, you will you always know this. You're always raising and you're never raising, right? So I think <laughs> that it's really about the opportunity that presents itself. And I think that this time, obviously, we had some really exciting investors that were, you know, willing to jump on board and really support our mission. So I think that it was the right time to showcase that. I also think that it speaks to how quickly we were able to grow in the last year. To be honest, the COVID pandemic was scary for us. You know, prior to the pandemic, our main industries were travel and lending. And so as soon as the COVID pandemic hit last March, our volumes took a plummet. But within just a couple of months, we were back to where we were right before the pandemic. And then from that point to this year, we've grown 200%. So I think it definitely showcases the resilience of the fintech industry. And also, I think on the back of that, there was an opportunity for a lot of kind of larger global VCs to recognize that resilience and, you know, worth. Wow, re really great story. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to get into the story later on of how actually Senate Philippines and Senate as a whole was able to pivot during this time because th those are the great stories that people want to hear. But, but Christian, uh, coming from your own background, you know, uh, in, in finance, no, just how big a deal is it that Senate Philippines is now a unicorn? Because, you know, in, in the Philippines, we don't often get, oh, in Tagalog, in terms yeah. of the whole uh, VC world or the venture capitalist world, or it's, it's something that people really look into. but but now you're, you've got a unicorn in the Philippines. How big is that? 
Yes, that's a big deal, really, RJ. So the way I think about it, right? So just being in the U.S. financial markets, what typically happens is, you know, if you're a portfolio manager, if you're an investor, uh, there's only certain types of industries or certain types of sectors that you look at or you follow. And so, you know, the more you know about it, the more you have familiarity, uh, the better valuations those companies get, whether it's private markets or public markets. And so traditionally, Southeast Asia, uh, the region itself, hasn't really been in the radar when it comes to, you know, the Western market investors yeah. where there's the largest pool of capital in the world, right? And so for one, uh, the unicorn funding is a big thing because it's a testament that it's an acknowledgement that there's an opportunity that exists in what we're doing in the region, in Indonesia, but also in the Philippines. But more importantly, it's a way for the investor community in the in the Western markets to actually uh, wake up that there is this sleeping tiger, you know, in Southeast Asia, that there are these opportunities that we need to actually start paying attention to. Uh, otherwise, you know, we'll miss out on those potential growth and potential returns. And so I think for me, the biggest thing is, it's funny, but I'm telling you, there are probably some, I would say there are some portfolio managers out there that has never even heard in some of the countries in Southeast Asia. But now <laughs> that we have this type of spotlight in the region, wow. they're going to know what's going on in the Philippines and you know the rest of Southeast Asia. And that's what I'm really excited about. Yeah. Having said that, Help us also better understand, and I hope we, I know this is this must be very basic for both you and Yang, no? But then uh, there's sort of like a yeah. series A, B, C, and then can you help them understand a bit more, like how much you have to raise for each one, and what do you mean by when you finally got to series C? Just how big were these? Inve- I mean, just give us an idea of like the magnitude of the type of investors who are coming into your series C funding, Christian. If if that's okay with you, yeah, sure. So I think maybe let's start with like from series A, and then let's go to series B, right? So. Maybe from the very beginning and the onset, uh, Y Combinator was, you know, the founding investor of Zendit, right? So just so that people know, uh, interrupt you basically. Yeah, tell them why yes. Combinator is a big deal. Sorry, I'm going to go back and forth, but this is great. No, it's, why it's, why Combinator is a big deal? Break yeah. it down. Yep. Uh, y Combinator, I think for us, you know, it's like the Harvard, right? It's a Harvard, the MIT of like that startup accelerator. They were really there for that those first big startups. And when you look at that value, you know, top Y Combinator companies evaluation, you're seeing all the big guys there, you know, like you're seeing Stripe, you're seeing Dropbox, you're seeing all these like really exciting names. And so for the Valley, especially for Silicon Valley, it's really that stamp of approval because Y Combinator kind of taught, and it was a bit revolutionary at the time, is that, you want 30% month-on-month growth. And I think when you think about that number, right, 30% doesn't sound like that much. But when you've done that for six months, doing it for the seventh, eighth, and ninth month, that's crazy. And so I think that when you think about, you know, what a VC looks for, they're always looking for that hockey stick, right? They want that like sharp ascent. They want to see that hockey stick go on for hyper growth for months and months on end. And that's really what Y Combinator helps its startups understand when to pivot, how to pivot, how you make sure that you're always hitting it out of the park with product market fit. And so really what Y Combinator invests into is less into the initial idea, but really into the team as a whole and the ability of that team to cater to every instance, not just to, you know, that first kind of idea where you're stuck on one brilliant idea you have as a founder, Mm -hmm. but as a founder, learning that Y Combinator way and being, as Moses always says, being a cockroach, learning to survive under any circumstance. Even the, under the threat of nuclear war, you will survive yeah. if you've gone under Y Combinator, <laughs> which is great. So it's sort of like, and we're going to get into this in a bit, that Zen was actually chosen to be part of Y Combinator. And that's when, that's when you were, I, I guess, first 
noticed by people. After that one, Christian, let's go back to your story. So why after Y Combinator? So after Y Combinator, uh, that's basically one of the most impressive things is, you know, there's only a very few, uh, it's a very prestigious list in terms of the number of, you know, Asia businesses or Asia-focused type of companies that get through to go to that program, right? And so you have Zendit coming in and the, basically the first market that they pitch was essentially entering the Indonesian market, right? So again, that was like the first recognition that there's opportunity in the Southeast Asia region. And then, you know, from there, uh, the company pivoted a couple of times and ended up in the payment gateway business. And that's basically one of the supports that we got from, you know, one of the Y Combinator folks that uh, mentored and really helped Moses. You know, it's basically one of the first YC partners in Y Combinator. His name is Justin Khan who was the founder of Twitch, who sold this company uh, to Amazon back then. And basically, he was the one who guided Moses and team all throughout, you know, the Series A process that was led by Excel and Kleiner Perkins, right? And so then that's basically, I think, the first stamp of legitimacy that you got from external investors outside of just the incubators when these two came in. And then from there, Yang, are we allowed to disclose what we raised in Series A? We are, right? (laughs) I think uh, let's stick to Series B and C. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so those are the ones that are more public. <laughs> All right. Well, so after that, so Excel basically led the Series uh, A, and then Series B essentially was also led by the same parties. And then now we have Tiger Global and Goat Capital, uh, who are basically uh, Justin Khan is one of the it's the founding member as well, who basically supported wow. us all throughout the way and really led us here in the Series C. Wow. So, and right now, these companies that are putting money in, because for people who don't realize these, these venture capitalists, just these last two, just how big are they? I mean, in, in that venture capitalist world, can you give us an idea? Yeah, you want to take this one in terms yeah. of like the names that we want to share about and which types of companies they've supported? Yeah, sure. they, they, that's, yeah that's right. <laughs> So I guess like if we were to highlight a couple of things, Excel and Kleiner Perkins had never looked at a Southeast Asian or especially, you know, like startup coming from the region until they invested in Zendit. And I think that that really was an exciting time for us, right? Because I remember when I was a founder, you know, of another Philippine startup, and I would also go pitch in the Valley. And the first question that they would always ask is, really the Philippines? How big is that total addressable market anyway? You know, like, are you sure you're going to be able to scale? You're going to reach the kind of scale that we need in order to get an exit out there? And I think that really it was a reliable, you know, trend, even in Singapore sometimes that you'd have to defend choosing the Philippines, choosing Southeast Asia, rather than moving, you know, founding the same business in Europe or the US. And I think that the fact that, you know, Excel, which, you know, has backed these massive giants in the past, right, you know, like Facebook, that they believe that we could hit that same kind of scale, that same kind of magnitude was really a show of faith. And so I think that for us, you know, it was really having that faith behind us and also having that brand of, of, you know, having the signal that someone this significant in the Valley looked at us. Wow. Particularly Tiger Global now is, a, it's like a new echelon, right? Tiger Global is, you know, a massive hedge fund. Over the last, you know, just couple of years, they've become really prominent in the VC industry, known for closing these really amazing deals really, really quickly. And their thesis is kind of interesting, right? They want the due diligence process to go very quickly because they don't want to distract from what founders do best, which is running their businesses. And I think that what they always go by is this gut feel. Will this company that they're investing into relatively quickly without a long due diligence process, very similar to that Y Combinator mentality, does it just have that genesis? Do the founders have that magic 
formula in order to just keep this kind of growth going. And so I think if you look at Tiger Global's portfolio, it's even more amazing, right? It's like, it's like Alibaba, for example, you know, they're really investing these giants. And so I think really, as we've gone through these different series, we're now finding ourselves in more and more impressive company, more and more companies to learn from. And I know that Moses, for example, like when he's gone to the Valley and hung out with the other Y Combinator founders, has always learned something. And I think that as we kind of move into these larger and larger kind of like pools of fellow founders as well, there's just more for us to learn from and more visibility we can bring to the Southeast Asian ecosystem. Fantastic. And talking about Alibaba, we've got somebody saying hi to you right now uh, on our chat box. We've got Abby Victorino saying hi, why, why? Abby, of course, have you also undergone the Alibaba Netpreneur Program? Love her pivot during uh, during this uh, pandemic, you know, from Style Genie to to Chat Genie to Grocer Genie. Really great story as well. We interviewed her a couple of weeks ago, uh, a couple of months ago, rather. Now, having said all this one, I think for those of us in the know, we know what Send It is, but maybe uh, we can explain a bit more for those who want to get a better understanding of what exactly is Send It. Maybe sort of like an elevator pitch, if you don't mind. Yang, uh, can you kind of summarize what Zen is for people who have no clue? Like, I'll be talking to my 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 seventy plus year old dad and say, "Dad, this is what Zen is all about." What can I say Zen is when when he asks me? Let me give you the uh, what you can say to a brother, and then what you can say to your dad, and then your grandpa. Right. So, <laughs> if you're talking someone your own age, I think for us, our mission has always been to just build payments infrastructure. Sounds really fancy. To me, infrastructure just needs dirty work nobody else wants to do. Because when you talk about infrastructure, it's building roads, it's building railways, it's building all the stuff that nobody sees, but everybody uses. Mm-hmm. And so if you're talking to your grandpa or your dad, it's the simplest, easiest payments across Southeast Asia. What we want to be is one a one-stop shop. You come to us, you integrate with us one time, go through this tech process one time, we help you in order to connect to every single payment method that people actually need to use across Southeast Asia. And I think that's kind of the easiest way to describe what Zendit wants to do. I think that at our core, we're still that payments company. As all these really exciting things come up in digital banking and open finance, we know that we've laid that infrastructure so that we can get involved in all of these new exciting frontiers in fintech as well. Wow. Easier to explain to my dad then. Thanks so much. Yeah. <laughs> but having said that, let me let me go back a bit more. No? And and I think one of the interesting things about doing this podcast is, you know, helping people understand that we often tell them and in any competition you pitch, right? You always the, the first question people often ask is, uh, what problem are you trying to solve? And you you refer back to Moses, and I understand Moses is actually the founder of Zendit out of Indonesia. Can you help bring us back a bit more? Let's say, okay, when Zendit was first founded in 2015-16. What problem were they trying to solve uh, in Indonesia when, when Zenit was first developed? So it's really interesting. In Indonesia, so we have in the Philippines Instapay, instant clearing network, super easy to send those payments. In Indonesia in 2015, everyone focused on collecting payments mm-hmm. and nobody had an instant disbursement API where you could just send money instantly and you wouldn't have to worry about it and it could be triggered by API. And that was the pain point that Zenit identified in the market and to this day, we are still the top disbursement gateway in all of Indonesia. And so I think that that really kind of shaped the mentality that Zendit has towards these pain points everywhere, right? It's not really about going out there and figuring out what the competition has and copying them. It's always about going out to the market and figuring out what the competition hasn't done yet, what no one has thought of to do but a lot of people have pain points in and then kind of building that new product or first to market product to make sure we hit it out of the park. Okay. So 
Christian was telling us earlier on that there were actually several pivots that that they had to make, and of course that, that happened. I mean that that's natural for any startup to make that you you do those you know you course correct on the way. What was the actually the, I guess the first initial model, and then what did they learn from until they kept on iterating until they had what might be the current version of what Zendit was in Indonesia? Believe it or not, given my background, I find that this is why you know I always feel like things are meant to be. Zendit started as a Bitcoin remittance company. <laughs> Bitcoin remittance company. Yes, it's okay. a very, very obscure, you know, part of our history. But that was what the original, original idea was. And of course, you know, when you look at the pain points that existed in Southeast Asia at the time, there simply weren't enough, you know, exchanges to make that feasible at the time. But I think we understood that there was this, there was the ability to disrupt the way money moved. We just didn't know how yet. And so from that Bitcoin remittance company became more of a domestic remittance company. So think Venmo for Indonesia. And the crazy part is that model took off. There were hundreds of thousands of users in a matter of weeks. But then it was, how do we monetize this? You know, like there's no way that we can just keep this going without any sort of, you know, revenue stream. And that's when we realized if we could get people to send money instantly to each other through this Venmo-like product, we could monetize just that part. And that's where the disbursement idea came from. That's where we understood that, you know, on the B2B side, maybe not B2C, on the B2B side, there's a lot of problems that we can solve just by selling the same technology we built to power that demo idea. Wow. Was this the idea that was eventually submitted to the Y Combinator, the, the B2B uh, remittance concept or the B2B uh, payment gateway concept? And that was what was accepted? Actually, no. <laughs> so speaking of, you know, the cockroach mentality, all of these pivots happened during the program. So basically <laughs> it was, interesting, interesting. You know, it went through, you know, yeah. this is what I mean when we say that, you know, why Combiner teaches you to be agile. It teaches you to just adapt to what any situation that's out there. Right. And so I think that what the founders really were able to prove is that they were, they could adapt to anything. When one idea wasn't quite panning out, didn't have that final kind of monetization strength, move on to something else. And I think ultimately by the end of that, when we settled on the disbursement API, that's really when, you know, series A happened and, you know, we were able to kind of scale that outward. I see. I see. So we keep on talking about Zendit as an, it's a Filipino company, but it's, it's actually of Indonesian uh, origin. Help us better understand. So from Indonesia, eventually they said, okay, let's expand. And I guess one of the first markets to my presumption is that it was the Philippines. And I guess, I guess the Philippines, uh, finding the Philippines helped it really grow the business a bit more. Help us understand from Indonesia, how did it find its way to the Philippines and what problem did it want to solve when it, when it came to the Philippines? And that's where you come in, right? <laughs> yeah. So a little bit about me. I had been in the Philippines for about two and a half years at that point. I had founded a, another fintech here called PDAX, like the Philippine Digital Asset Exchange. So it was a crypto exchange uh, based here in the Philippines. Yeah, and actually... And Nichelle Nichel Gabo is actually my guest on the show a couple of weeks ago. So it's, it's, quite, it's sort of like I'm introducing you by, by the other guests who have come on the show. And DragonPay was also my guest. Oh, yeah. Uh, Victor was also my guest a couple of weeks ago. So what a great way to bring you guys in. <laughs> yes, definitely. You, you must have known. But I think that for us, you know, for me at least, you know, I had been at PDAX for about two years. And I think at that point, what I realized is that, you know, I had always kind of had this idea of like building infrastructure. And I think that what I realized is that, you know, the crypto exchange aspect was kind of veering towards, you know, the investing aspect. That's what our investors wanted. I think that's really that vision that Nichelle had, you know, kind of captured and embodied so well. And so I was actually on, you know, my way out of PDAX and about to take a really long sabbatical when I met Moses. 
And at the time, Moses was actually looking at several markets in Southeast Asia. He wasn't sure where we would be able to find a keen pain point the way that we had in Indonesia. So he was really waiting for that kind of like problem statement to present itself. And actually, when I first sat down to lunch with him, it was, you know, in BGC across the street from our current office. So, you know, all things meant to be. We were at Wildflower and he said, this is what Zendit does. We work with financial institutions and we build new solutions. And I was like, why not the Philippines then? Like, why haven't you already just decided the Philippines is a market? And he said, well, look at Instapay, look at DragonPay, look at, look at all these different payment solutions that exist in the Philippines. Maybe there's no more room in the market. And I said, you know, I have been here building a fintech, you know, heading product for a fintech for two years. And let me tell you, as amazing as the solutions are, it is not cut out for the next generation of startups. Do you work more than eight hours a day with meetings from day and night? Well, Glow Prepaid has got your back. With Glow Prepaid's Go Plus 99, for just 99 pesos, you can now work from Monday to Sunday with ease. Break free from your stress and start working efficiently as you utilize Zoom, Facebook Meeting Room, Yahoo Mail, Microsoft Teams, WhatsApp, Viber, and Telegram for the whole week. With a total of 16 gig of data, you can now have 8 gig of all sites to do what you need and 8 gig of data for apps that you love through Globe Prepaid's Go Plus 99 with Go Work promo. On top of that, you also get unlimited texts to all networks valid for 7 days. To register, grab your mobile phones right now and head on over to the Globe One app, Gcash or dial asterisk 143 hashtag on your phone to access apps like Zoom, Facebook Meeting Room, Yahoo Mail, Microsoft Teams, WhatsApp, Fiber, and Telegram. With Globe Prepaid's Go Plus 99 and other Go Plus offers, you can now break free and be a boss. There are a lot of legacy solutions, and I, you know, all credit goes to you know the Dragon Pays and Paynamics that have built out these legacy solutions. But those were made for a very specific segment of the market. And now here's mm. a revolution, right? This new digital economy is going to require a lot more innovation, a lot more creativity, and it requires someone with the technical chops and the expertise to come in and really work with partners on the ground to build out world-class payments experiences, which is what Moses said that you know Zendit did. And he kind of looked at me and said, "Are you sure?" You know, like we really talked to so many players in the market that just seem to have it all together. And I was like, trust me, I'm sure. So he's like, you know, it sounds like you're really interested in this. Like, do you want to work together? And I was like, you know, I have a one-way ticket to Italy right now. I'm really not sure if this is the right time. You know, like I, I would love to kind of continue to help Zendit's journey, kind of starting in the Philippines, but maybe not, you know, join Zendit altogether. And then over the next couple of months, I just couldn't forget about it. I think that I had come to the Philippines, you know, that two and a half years before that, with such a direct admission in mind, with so much certainty, you know, that this was the right time for the Philippines to make that grand kind of like leap and hit that hyper growth stage I was waiting for. And then at some point, my husband looked at me and said, you know, we're sitting on like this beach in Italy. You're talking to me about Zendit. Maybe you should take a second conversation. And so I think I, I kept in touch with the team a little bit, you know, from here and there, just kind of making some intros and Finally, when you know, I sat down with Moses and we really talked about what the mission would be for the Philippines, there were a couple of things that convinced me. And the first part of that was we would run it like a 
ground up lean operation here. And so I loved that idea. You know, it wasn't like we were going to come here and like set up this massive subsidiary. It was just going to be me. And I would hire this scrappy little team and we'd figure things out along the way, the same way that we had done before. And so I joined in September of 2019, started exploring this market and the rest is history, I guess. Wow. Really great story over there. And I, w- I want to go, go into that a bit more later on, but I want to go to Christian first over here and ask him a question as well. Now, Christian, I know that you've, you've actually, this is interesting. You were coming back, but Yang recruited you and you happen to be Filipino. I mean, you could have not been Filipino, but then <laughs> how did you guys connect in the first place? I know that Yang reached out to you, right? How did you guys come together? I know there's a personal story and there's probably a professional story there as well. Well, you know, I wish, you know, I was more impressive that uh, my profile resonated in LinkedIn, but it's uh, it's a little bit more personal. <laughs> I wasn't found by a headhunter or anything like that. It was really, uh, Yang and I uh, go way back in terms of us being friends with, you know, I was first friends with her husband. Funny enough, his name is Chris. <laughs> so in the office to avoid confusion, uh, you know, I call myself Reyes. <laughs> oh, I see, I see. Yeah. So Chris basically was uh, the roommate or my roommate's uh, co-worker when he was working at Goldman. So that's kind of how we were all kind of just going about, you know, our Saturday afternoon, spending time together in New York. And then little did we know, uh, that was the time where we were going to meet Yang Yang. She was visiting uh, from, I think, from Boston. Uh, and... Kind of like the rest was history. Uh, that's how I met Yang Yang. And it was just really interesting because, you know, at that time we were just, just kids and we didn't know that we would be doing this together, you know, years and years after meeting each other. And it was just such a serendipitous story. Uh, so I was just back in the Philippines in February and uh, for my brother's wedding. And, you know, it was just, I was actually in Shargao. Is that Feb 2019 or Feb 2020? 2021, Feb 2021. Yes. Oh, you were here during the pandemic? I was there during the pandemic. Yes. Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and I was uh, I was there and I was catching up with Yang Yang's husband. We were talking over in Zoom um, just because we couldn't have drinks together. But then we were supposed to be, well, it was supposed to be a social catch up. Yang Yang kind of just butts in the conversation <laughs> <laughs> and then starts talking about Zendit. And I was like, you know, 10 minutes in, Yang Yang hasn't stopped talking, but okay, keep talking. This is interesting. And so I just couldn't stop like learning about it in such a way that I asked Yang Yang, hey, can you send me more materials? I'd love to read more about it, learn more what payment gateways do, you know, what the industry looks like. And when I flew back to the States for the next two or three weeks, I just couldn't stop reading about it. Like the whole industry, uh, what's happening in the region, the whole digital revolution that's going on in Southeast Asia. It just felt like I just wanted to be part of it. It was just, it, you know, it was like it was about like it was something big that was about to happen, and yeah, I couldn't stop. You know, for two weeks every day, I would wake up first two hours of the day from you know five a.m. to seven a.m. before I started work, and I was just reading and reading and I was asking Yang Yang questions. I think we had several phone calls and hours and hours of me just picking her head, and at that time she know, had you hooked from that ten minute yeah, conversation. Yeah. Yes, she got me hooked. She got me hooked. And also, I think it was just time, you know, I was in the Philippines and I felt like it was the right time. It's just all the stars came together. And so it was just like, you know, what they say, the best things in life come unexpected. It was like one of those things. <laughs> Chris, I, I have a question. I hope you don't mind me getting into this one. Yeah, of course. Many of our Kababayans, they like for yourselves, uh, like myself, I, I had a chance to study abroad and, and some of them, they find themselves eventually just living over there, right? And then not, not coming back home. For you, in the midst of the pandemic, you've you made the choice to come back. 
what is a balik bayan? Do you see as you know something that maybe not not others are seeing about the country, about sure. making you want to come home? And you know, I'm capturing this also because we did have an interview a couple of days ago, and and you've got your Ignatian spirituality and your <laughs> one big fight attitude, and saying you want to come back home and serve, which for me, which makes me very very happy to hear, right? But yep. can you tell me about but your own, you know, what what made you want to come home when you when you seem to already have a comfortable life abroad? Sure. So I'm going to answer that in two parts, if you don't mind. Uh, please, please. And so I think the first part of this is, you know, I've always known that I was going to go home. It was just a matter of when, not if. And I think, like I said, in like our last interview last week, basically, you know, after that immersion experience that I had in that Tulang Dunang program, I've always known how important or a financial inclusion and access it really is, you know, for, you know, the betterment of communities and their quality of life. And that's just something I've always taken away and kind of took to heart in terms of the kind of impact that I would want to make in, in the Philippines and across the businesses in the country. But that was sort of the why, meaning I've always wanted why I've always wanted to come back is make a difference. What I couldn't figure out for years and years, that's why I kind of got stuck in the States, is the how part. You know, what or how or will I make that impact and how am I going to make a difference? And I never got that answer until, you know, I met Yang Yang, not met Yang Yang, but talked to Yang Yang about Zendit. And when Yang Yang talked about, you know, what Zendit is doing, sort of the, the building digital infrastructure for the first time in the Philippines and um, giving, you know, businesses like the small businesses that I've seen when I did that immersion in communities, you know, a chance to get access in the broader markets and be able to tap into larger or more customers that can afford those types of products to grow their businesses, you know, that really struck a chord for me. And so, you know, the purpose that I was always looking for, I felt like I found it. And that's sort of like why or how I find a way to basically chart my path back to the Philippines. And I think the interesting about it here is that, you know, having the perspective of both markets, like the US, which is very mature, what you're actually going to see weird enough is what holds back from the hyper growth that you should be able to see in markets like the US or in developed markets is their archaic infrastructure. Believe it or not, like I worked in, you know, what people would call a, a pretty well funded, a well heart of Wall Street, which is electronic trading. But what really holds us back is the type of technology that we have to build our new technologies on because uh, they're stuck with using, you know, code that basically existed since the 1950s. Sort of like legacy technology you have to work with, right? Yes, I don't like. I don't even know what Cobalt is, but we have Cobalt developers, <laughs> so I shouldn't be admitting that in, in, <laughs> on the show. But we have that, right? So there's that it creates an upper bound in terms of how fast and how quickly the market can move and how big they can get. And what's really interesting about the Philippines and even just in Southeast Asia is we don't have that limitation, right? And so we have the opportunity to build something from scratch, build a digital infrastructure that we've never had before and get it right in the first time. And so when you have that opportunity, we can leapfrog. We have an opportunity to leapfrog some of the things that are being done in all these developed markets and then really be able to capture that growth that these markets are unable to produce. And that's, to me, was the most exciting part in terms of opportunity. And I just really felt like it's something that I really want to be part of. Well, well, thanks for coming. Thanks for being a man for others and coming back over here. I think that's a really <laughs> inspirational story for me. Yeah. Yang, I have a question for you now. This is the interesting thing, you know, as I was doing my own research on Yang, that I both found out we were both uh, MIT, uh, MIT alumni. And uh, I just welcomed her to the MIT Club of the Philippines just a couple of, uh, just last week. 
And but this is what interests me more now that you know Yang also of I, I guess of Chinese descent uh, living in the states, right? And then you know you you went to MIT and you know you could have lived well in the states, right? Why why did you come to the Philippines? Because there are many people who think that you know Philippines, well, what opportunity lies over there? But you you I mean with your degree and 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 from what you know, you you came over here to help set up a company. What motivated you to come over here to the country and then you know think that there was there's potential over here? There are a couple of things. First of all, my dad is those people. He's like, you know, I, I struggle to get from China to the States for you. How could you move back to Asia? You know? But I think for me, I, I had always been a very mission-driven person. I think no matter what role I was in, what I cared about most is what we were doing, what the bigger picture was. And so the role that I had, I was in before kind of starting this transition to moving to the Philippines, I was the chief marketing officer for a publicly listed environmental tech company. And it was really interesting because prior to that, I had done a lot of early stage ventures. And this was the first sort of like very late stage, very mature company. It was 18 years old that I had been a part of. And I kind of saw the end stage of a company. It was exciting. We kind of went through, you know, an exit together. But at the same time, what what that made me see is that I want to be able to bridge that too. You know, I want to be the one to build a company that can have that kind of massive impact. Because while I was at this environmental tech company, we got to do amazing things. We worked with the UN. We worked with the Sustainable Development Goals Committee of the UN. We built some incredible projects in emerging markets. And so I think that if I were to look at the drivers, you know, that kind of brought me to the Philippines, we had three things. The first was that through weirdly working in environmental tech, I saw the power of infrastructure. And at the time, I didn't call it that. But at the time, what I realized was, you have to do that dirty work. There's a lot of, you know, layer two solutioning that happens. You know, people always want to build the sexy new stuff. But what really makes an impact, particularly in emerging markets, is fixing that legacy underlayer, right? And so I think that, you know, at one point, we were doing this through wastewater treatment. And then I realized, you know, that, kind of pain point exists everywhere because a lot of these kind of emerging markets haven't had the luxury of resources to build up that strong foundation through the last several decades. And then second thing was that, you know, I really love the discipline of product. So a little bit about, you know, my history at MIT, I started in course six. So I started in, you know, electrical engineering and computer science, six, two. <laughs> and there are a couple of pivots that happened yeah. there. The first was after the first circuits class. I was like, oh man, I can't do this. <laughs> and then I was, you know, purely comp sci. And then when I was in comp sci, I was a little bit confused because I've been coding since I was five. Like it was really something that had been part of my DNA for most of my childhood. But when I got to MIT, I realized that all of my classmates loved coding in a very different way than I did. I loved coding as a tinker and a mad scientist. You know, I loved kind of building my own projects and doing my own thing and figuring out how to, you know, just create these little programs that I would just kind of create for different situations in my life. They loved the technicality of it. And I think I didn't fall in love with the technicality of coding. I fell in love with the potential of what it could do. But without revealing too much about my age, it was too long ago for the discipline of product to really exist in the valley. I was a little, maybe five years before I had, had, had my time. And so right before, I'd actually had a very short stint as the founder of a Silicon Valley startup heading product without much background knowledge. I just really wanted somebody to kind of come in and learn product and then kind of lead that portion of the startup. And I really fell in love with the idea of being able to kind of bridge the business side and the tech side. And so I knew that I wanted to found a startup that would allow me to create new products. 
And then finally, I knew from a lot of the projects I had done, again, at this environmental tech company, that I wanted to be in Southeast Asia. We had done so much infrastructure consulting for Vietnam and Malaysia. I saw the massive impact that it had there. I saw even, you know, massive impact we'd had in countries like Rwanda. And so I really wanted to kind of find a country where I knew that I could put that technical expertise, that product mindset to use. And that's where the Philippines emerged. Because when we were in Korea at the time, I had started doing some arbitrage trading for cryptos. And I had never really been interested in like finance or in investments at all. What fascinated me was that if there were a 40% price differential between Korea and the US, that means that some contingent of people wanted this asset 40% more than another group of people just, you know, across the ocean. And so I think what fascinated me was that, you know, crypto was just driving so much interest globally. And I wanted to maximize that technology. And so what brought me to the Philippines was one these super friendly regulators. I think that what convinced me was that when we first founded PDAX, I came and spoke to the BSP and had a four-hour super productive meeting, even though they had no idea who we were. And the second was that when you look at the history of the Philippines, it really is a country of a missed opportunity in terms of hyper growth. I remember that after I got back from the BSP meeting, the first time we kind of pitched the PDAX idea to them, I noticed that in a really large kind of public square in Korea, there was a statue commemorating a donation from the Philippines to the Korean people after the Korean War. And it was crazy because when you look at that, you're like, this is a country that was really headed for massive hyper growth, you mm-hmm. know, even as long ago as the Korean War. And I think that along the way, there just have been a couple of, you know, structural issues have held it back. And I thought to myself, given this sort of, you know, young, very, very kind of intelligent, fast-moving population, this is the right time to reclaim this. This is the right time for the Philippines to be able to leapfrog via technology and not just build to the standard that, you know, all the other countries in Southeast Asia or Europe or the U.S. are at today, but really take a look at where they are now and chart a path to 10 years beyond. Because if we start today and build for the next 10 years, we don't want to just catch up to where they are in 2021. We want to be the leaders in 2031. And so I think to me, that was that massive opportunity that presented itself for the Philippines, right? I knew that this was a place where regulators would allow this sandbox approach, promote innovation, be real partners in this endeavor. And at the same time, it was an opportunity to really help an entire country leapfrog and claim that, you know, legacy that was kind of due over the last few decades. Wow. And so what first brought you in was PIDAX, is that right? The the Philippine Digital Exchange, right? So did Nichelle give you a call and say, hey, come over here, Yang? How, how, did, you, how did you guys, I mean, how did you guys connect and, and come over here? That's what makes me curious. I mean, how did, you, how did you find him? So even crazier, my husband was working at Samsung at the time. That's why we were in Korea. And he actually was colleagues with this guy named Benji, who happened to have been such childhood friends with Nichelle. Actually, I think he met through maybe work. I think at some point, either way, we all started talking about, you know, blockchain, about the opportunities that existed through there. And then we all connected that way. I think we all kind of talked ourselves into it, actually. I remember my husband was actually one of the co-founders also. So it was me, my husband and Michelle, who are the three co-founders. I I think my husband was actually probably the most enthusiastic. He was the furthest away. He's Polish-American, furthest away from the (laughs) Philippines, but really saw that opportunity. I was a little bit hesitant because I had never really been in fintech necessarily until then. And then finally, you know, we decided this is it. Let's try it out. If we can get, you know, an investor on board by the end of that year, let's do it. 
Well, PDOC seems to be on the way as well. Just like you guys, I'm, I'm glad to see that uh, that you're in two companies that are in two good shapes, at least uh, in good shapes, at least moving on for the next couple of years. Now, I want to go back right now to Zendit, right? And when it first landed over here, like you said, what's nice about Zendit and when they came to the Philippines is that they had to sort of customize a solution over here. Walk me through like what, what happened right now. If both you and Christian can help me out over here, help me better understand, okay, what's the first product that you came up with over here? And how did you have to sort of like iterate or pivot from there? So let me start with the day one story. Day one was not like, you know, any other sort of kickoff, I guess. I had no team. So it was just really me. And I think on day one, it was just about filling my calendar with talking to as many partners and customers as possible. The way that we saw building out a product here, it was really figuring out what lay at the center of the Venn diagram, what partners were willing to let us do, what customers really needed. And I think initially, actually, our first product wasn't one that hit it out of the park immediately. It was disbursements because we thought to ourselves, you know, we're really great at disbursements in Indonesia. We may as well bring it over here and just start trying to build because it was something that we could build out relatively quickly. And while we're building that out, we started speaking to Grab. And GrabPay had been looking for these host-to-host bank connections for some time. The ability to kind of pull from bank accounts and then directly kind of transfer the funds, link that bank account for future use. It's something that had never really existed in the Philippines before. When you think about bank transfer, this is something that you know I really had to learn because I had to you know learn how to you know buy things from social sellers here in the Philippines. You had to send you know like an Instapay transaction, right? Some sort of bank transfer. And then take a photo yes, yes. of the bank receipt. Yes, yeah. This is what we did at PDAX too. You know, there were these manual transfers. So you had to manually reconcile all of these deposit slips. A lot of times that you got in person. And so when I heard that, you know, some banks might be open to building out this more elegant solution, I thought this is it. This has to be the one that hits out of the park because bank transfers is really at the core of so much of the financial ecosystem. And with the ability to use bank transfers more seamlessly, you're opening up from this sort of very low 3% credit card penetration to at least 30, that's 10x, right? 35% bank penetration. You're allowing people the ability to use their bank accounts. And so that was the first product that we built for the Philippines and customized for the Philippines. And that's really the product that has you know been the core of the value proposition we're able to give. We're still the only payment gateway that offers it. We are live now with three, four banks, I think, and adding, you know, banks aggressively to the pipeline as the year continues. And so I think it really, again, was about listening to the market, but especially about finding out what the market didn't already have. Instead of trying to, let's say, look at what Dragon Pay had already and just try to build out everything they've had, we figured we can always partner for those solutions. As you know now, you know, we did a strategic investment in Dragon Pay so that we can have access and offer their solutions to our merchants. But what we really focused on was those first-to-market solving problems that had never been solved before. And just, can you give me an idea right now, Christian or Yang, like just how, from where you began with, with Zendit, just how big have you grown in the past year? I, I know, I mean, you've got big clients on board uh, that you're working with here right now. Maybe Christian, you can give us some, some idea? Yeah, I mean, Yang is probably better suited to give the historical context, but... What I can tell you is, you know, in terms of just our presence in the Philippines, we started with less than three people. Yang Yang, well, how many members do we have? It was like that. And we're probably up to about 90 people now. So it kind of wow. just gives you an idea of the growth that we've seen uh, in the span of a year. So 
And that's not because we were anticipating, or it's not, that's not just because we're chasing growth. Uh, we're basically, we're always kind of behind in terms of where the market is. So even at 90 people, we think we're a little behind in terms of our size in the Philippines. And I, I think, you know, one of the most exciting things about the funding announcement is we're able to recommit more capital and grow our presence here. In terms of the TPV, you know, we've been growing aggressively over 30% month over month in some cases, much more. And even despite the pandemic, you know, we had a little scare uh, when it first started. But what it really proved was that there is a place for digitization in the Philippines. And we're starting to really capture market share, not just in the enterprise level, but also in the mid-market and all the way down to the SMEs and individual sellers. So we're really excited about that. I like the scare. Actually, I like the scare part. Yeah. Tell me a bit about the scare because that's the... <laughs> That actually becomes a sort of like, that becomes your inflection point for business sometimes, right? So tell me about that scare and then how did the business adjust when that happened? And that's when, that's usually when the, when the, when the hockey stick comes up after you, after you pivot during that scare. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah. So if you remember, I think we all have to remember, you know, mid-March last year, lockdowns declared. And I can clearly remember that we were in our first office, which by the way, is just in a house. And we had a couple of people visiting from Indonesia who were desperately trying to make sure their flights were still leaving the next day. <laughs> <laughs> and we were building out our first products. This was when we had just started building out direct debit. So we didn't even know if we would you know, be able to survive through building out this first new exciting product that we had so much faith in. We weren't really live yet, you know, because it was only March. We just started building like a month ago. And I remember just, you know, looking around and thinking to myself, I have to keep this going. There has to be a way. And I think slowly what we realized is through the pandemic, e-wallet adoption came up massively. It really helped us because a lot of the solutions that we're building would be great for fintechs and e-wallets. And so I think there were kind of two great drivers in that beginning portion. The first is that direct debit was the right call. Of course, you know, grab pay adoption went up as long, you know, kind of through the pandemic as well. They were using direct debit. There was a very clear kind of growth curve there. We also were the first to kind of bring on all three e-wallets and offer them through a single integration. So for you know a time we you know had GCash, PayMaya, and GrabPay all in one at the right time for them all to have kind of exploded in terms of usage. And then finally, we also made this bet on a buy now pay later platform. So I think that you know previously it was really difficult for a lot of people to qualify for credit, and of course during the pandemic people really needed access to credit. And so we basically made this bet that if we integrated buy now pay later partners, we could offer them to our merchants, who could then allow their end customers to pay not only through credit cards but also through these pay later platforms. And so I think those three moves really helped us one diversify the industries we could get involved in. So it wasn't just you know one that's the ones that were hardest hit, and two start building a very Filipino customer base. I mean, initially, of course, you know we had a lot of regional customers like Ninja Bank, for example. You know, is a customer in Indonesia. They also use us here. Zalingo, same thing. But then we started picking up a lot of local customers who kind of thought, "Wow, this is a company that's offering stuff that we don't see anywhere else in the market currently." And so I think that for us, that's really where that hockey sticks started to hit. We started appealing to a lot more like larger enterprises here locally. And I think that's really just starting, actually. I think we have so many big projects yes. currently in an integration phase that we're really starting. I think a really great anecdote is that, you know, I can't disclose the number, but I of remember course. that in December of last year, we put up a really, really big number as a target for December of this year. And the entire team just laughed. It was, it was like a Philippines town hall. The entire team just thought I was kidding when I put that number up. 
And in, I would say maybe like by like May of this year, the team actually told me at town hall, you weren't kidding. I think we're going to hit that number. (laughs) And I think everyone's just in disbelief, you know, that this could actually happen. But I think it really was just sort of one blind faith and two, the certainty that if we just found the right solutions and just kept building out new things that no one had ever seen, that people would eventually kind of hear about us and come over. Wow. Then having said that, Christian, I mean, it's going to be a week until you, you come over here. So, I mean, it's pretty exciting for you as well. I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm excited to have you all over here. Just what do you see? Uh, I mean, having said, uh, with all the pivots that you have us done with the hockey stick, uh, with, with the hockey stick in your favor here right now in terms of growth of uh, Send It, what are the opportunities do you see emerging really right now uh, for Send It here in the Philippines? What are you guys going to be doing here? Uh, give us, just give us a little flavor of what's going to be happening, of how Send It's going to be growing here in the country. So I think in terms of just what Zendit or just in general outside of Zendit opportunities, just to clarify. Well, let's, let's talk about Zendit first. And after that, let me just talk about opportunities in general. Yeah. So I think for us, really, what we really, really want to focus on is just the SME space. That we think is just a very much underserved segment of the market. And I think there's a lot of opportunity to bring these world-class products that we've built uh, in such a way that we can basically, these SMEs that are able to take advantage of these enterprise level type of products and customize for their specific use cases. Things like recurring use cases in the Philippines, that's something that we're really excited about. I think we've led the torch there as well. There's so many types of products where you require just a monthly payment use case. And Right now, it's hard to believe it, but it's still just a very much inconvenient uh, type of way and people still forget to pay their you know, monthly payments. And so we're very focused on growing our direct debit portfolio and adding more features to be able to serve these types of use cases. Wow. And uh, having said that also as well, uh, we're coming to the close of our discussion. And uh, what, what I really want to talk about as well is, you know, we want to show people that, you know, despite this, I guess, this pandemic, you know, there's always a silver lining when we see that there are opportunities that are present that, you know, sometimes the, the pandemic just allowed, presented itself as a result of this, uh, of this pandemic, opportunities came about. Christian, in your opinion, what have you seen? I've seen, you're looking at it from your perspective, 14 years working in the States, uh, they're coming over here. You're seeing that there are opportunities for people to work with Zendin and also opportunities at large. What are these opportunities you're seeing in terms of, of business here in the Philippines? Sure. I think one thing that I would love to see more in the Philippines is just um, more financial inclusion from an investing standpoint. Right now, you know, I think the scope of investors is just very much limited. And I've always had the firm belief that you know, investing is one of the best ways to build your wealth on a passive basis, right? So that you're not entirely dependent on your income because you never know what's going to happen to your job. And right now, you know, access to that seems a little, the barriers are still pretty high. I think the U.S. has done a pretty good job democratizing access, and there's a lot of investing platforms that are practically free uh, where investors can participate and have access to a lot of financial products, whether you're an active investor all the way to a passive investor. And I think you know businesses like that would really be well-suited in a digital age like this. And you know the more we're able to build, help build the digital infrastructure in the Philippines, I think businesses like that will have a lot more runway to thrive and grow and be able to reach a lot more customers than to traditional investors that you think of in the Philippines. 
Fantastic. By the way, just just going back a bit more, you're saying that you could help out MS, uh, MSMEs or micro, small, and medium enterprises. Uh, there's a way that they can actually get in touch with you. And uh, Mika, who's backstage right now from Senate, was sharing with us. Maybe, Christian, you can just share with people listening here right now, if they are a uh, small, medium-scale enterprise and they want to be able to subscribe or at least check out the services of Zenit, how, where can they go to, to find that out? Sure. So we have a website that's uh, zendit.co slash uh, forward slash E-N-P-H. Or you can just uh, find us in uh, social media. We have an Instagram page. We have a Facebook, presented.ph. We have a lot of information there. And we're also about to launch a campaign for uh, targeted for uh, SMEs. And so we're really excited about that. We touched upon that in our last uh, interview, RJ. So uh, please be on the lookout. There's a lot of things coming there. Uh, you know, you'll learn more about our products. There are some uh, you know, fee benefits that people are going to get and also a lot of learnings and uh, knowledge sharing that's going to happen. So I uh, hope you can tune in. And also, please don't forget to visit our website. Great. Just give them a little flavor for the MSMEs who might not be, you know, can we help concretize for them? Let's say if you're a small business, what exactly can Zendit do for you so they can get a better uh, better feel of what Zendit is, is all about? Sure. And so for us, right, we talk about access and we try to make it, uh, you know, we try to really simplify the whole payment process for any company. And so from experience, when you're dealing with an enterprise, you know, you're really providing customized solutions where you have a full tech team and you're working on massive technology projects for months to be able to provide something that's uh, more at an enterprise level. What we try to do for the SME side of things is really remove the barriers to entry uh, when it comes to have facilitating digital payments. And so we create tools like dashboards, for example, that aggregate all the different payment methods all in one. So you can see everything in terms of track the different payments that you're expecting. A traditional MSME right now who doesn't have digital payments or who has all these fragmented different payment methods, you know, sometimes you'll accept uh, payment from Gcash. Sometimes you'll accept payment from a credit card. Sometimes you'll accept payment from uh, a retail outlet. And you're constantly checking in all those different places to even just check if you've already been paid, much less That's check right. if the right. funds have settled. And so, you know, these are types of products that we can actually provide to SMEs out of the box just by signing up with us. And so, you know, what we'd really try to do is provide services and technology that you don't need a full tech team or you don't need IT whizzes to be able to deploy for your business and things that you can just basically build out of the box. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Christian. Uh, Yeah, when you first came over here in the Philippines, cryptocurrency was something that you were pretty excited about. And also the other uh, environmental technologies. Like I often tell people when they come on the show, what excites them is to find out if there was an opportunity out there, Yang, where you still had the bandwidth or you weren't working with, with Zendit that you could still do. What are the opportunities do you see emerging in the Philippines that, that still excite you? So the blockchain dream is not dead. You know, I think I still have a lot of friends in the blockchain community. I think that to me, the immediate application of blockchain in the Philippines has been heavily weighted towards investments there is a future in which crypto can be used for remittance. There is a future in which NFTs can be used to represent commodities, can be used to represent really, really interesting assets and give Filipinos the ability to kind of have fractional ownership of really exciting assets. So, but, you know, outside of blockchain worlds, I've already done that. I feel like the biggest opportunity here in the Philippines is actually in reinventing some of these everyday experiences. So if you think about it, some of the you know most disruptive business models have been business models like Uber, have been business models that have taken these very micro everyday experiences 
and turn them into something efficient and scalable. And so I think that in the Philippines, there's definitely something, for example, like what Kumu did, right? Take this idea of, you know, that Filipinos love engagement, love this idea of live streaming and make it uniquely their own, make this whole digital ecosystem. There are a lot of those opportunities out there. And so if there were an entrepreneur kind of looking for that one big idea, look at the everyday life, you know, look at the pain points that exist in everyone's daily usage of the internet, everyone's daily interactions with each other. And there has to be something scalable there. And so that's what I'm really looking forward to, kind of seeing these uniquely Filipino solutions come up and then hopefully also cascade to the rest of Southeast Asia. Well, fantastic. Yang, thanks so much to both of you. It's been a really great opportunity. I wish we had more time, but I'm very excited for the growth of Zendit because primarily I work with a firm Mercato Central and with other small MSMEs, and I can see how by through Zendit, we're really helping them grow their own uh, ecosystem to grow their businesses. And you know, payments has been one of their uh, biggest solutions that can help them grow. But of course, payments from different providers is, is the best way to grow. And hopefully... Uh, we get to work more with Zendit and uh, the MSMEs here in the Philippines to help everybody get back on track and to survive and thrive in the next normal. So again, thank you so much, Yang Yang Zhan, Managing Director of Zendit Philippines, and of course, Christian Reyes. Kapabayan, welcome back home very, very soon, the Chief Operating Officer of Zenit Philippines. Again, thanks so much to all the people watching from Zenit for supporting. And uh, Nathan, can we just flash one more time? If you are an MSME who wants to get in touch with Zendit, we're showing it here right now, the website. It's www.zendit.co uh, forward slash em dash ph forward slash. Again, guys, thank you so much for the opportunity. And again, we'll see you for the next episode of the RJ Ladespa podcast. Guys, stay safe, stay healthy, and of course, please do get vaccinated. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you, RJ. Thanks so much. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia, the hosts of the program, or other programs of the network. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything.